Don't look at the stock market. Why would you look at the stock market? Do you just want to feel like you hate yourself? I don't know. <laughs> Friday, October 7th, 11.01 a.m. Central, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Why was that so hard? Hey, so the stock market's not doing very well right now, but it's okay. You're here with Fars and friends, right? We're going to talk about all things Tesla, Elon, Twitter, Semi, blah, blah, blah. Welcome to my panelists today. We have the Borg Hand, Mr. Good Richard, morning. Good morning. and Hans. Welcome in, y'all. Thank you for joining me today. How you guys feeling? <laughs> We're doing great. <laughs> I love how you said we. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, just, you know, bringing it up from the universe. We're great. We're doing We're, great. We're doing great. We being the Tesla community. We're doing yes. great. Yes, yes. I honestly uh, thought actually, about making a big old bag of popcorn and just eating popcorn today. <laughs> I mean, the show this week, all the news, all the different stuff going on between Man. Twitter and AI Day and the stock market and semis releasing and all of it. It's just been absolutely insane. Yeah, absolutely wild. Uh, for those that are not uh, looking at the stock market, I'll just pull this up for 30 seconds. Tesla's down 5%, down to 225. If I go back and I look at the rest of the market, it's not doing too hot either. We got the S&P down 2, Dow 160, uh, NASDAQ 3. So everything sucks right now, but not absolutely everything because we do have a lot of really cool stuff to talk about, like Hans said. So um, we were chatting before we went live as well. There's a, a few things we want to hit, but... Um, I'll let you guys take it. I mean, what what do you guys? I, I know Richard. You talked. You said um, Twitter might be a good topic of discussion to talk about. Um, but we're also chatting about some comments around the semi and stuff. So sure. uh, maybe do you mind draw the discussion? Sure, and, sure. Yeah. So you know, some of us Tesla people might be interested in the Twitter deal. Um, so I, I read a bunch of information. I kind of want to like as best I can clarify, kind of in my mind, what's going on. I'm going to try to do that. So uh, yesterday there was some uh, discussion or information about the closing date being October 28th. And um, the way I see it is what happened was there were negotiations between Elon and Elon's council and the council for Twitter. And Elon apparently at some point in time sought a 30% discount on the price of the company. Mm -hmm. um, Twitter responded apparently by giving him something on the order of a 10 to 15% discount. He mm. declined because they wanted to be unconditional. Elon wanted the deal to be still conditioned on the financing that he would have to secure financing. And the Twitter board didn't want that. They wanted it unconditional. Basically, we'll give you a 15% discount, but you have to perform. Uh, he has not agreed to that. So, um, what they did is uh, Twitter believes, the Twitter board, and I, this is my speculation, but the Twitter believes that he's going to try to use the financing as an out to get out of the deal. They wanted to remove that as a contingency. That's why they agreed to give him a discount. That, that's why they didn't accept his deal, and that's why they're moving forward with the trial, theoretically. So what happened is um, the judge gave them till October 28th to reach a deal. And if a deal's not reached by that date, then she will set a date in November. So I think it was reported yesterday they had to reach a deal by October 28th. That's not correct. That's just when a trial date will be set and they could still negotiate. But it certainly suggests that Elon wants to retain that 
financing contingency as a possible out. Um, now, the, the, the transaction itself and this legal proceeding is, is called an equitable proceeding, which means that uh, Twitter, in this case, is trying to get fairness. They're trying to, and, and in this case, they're seeking specific performance. That's the remedy. And that means that the judge can force the deal to, to conclude. Most times, specific performance for like most people are in real estate transactions. So maybe somebody who wants to buy a condo and the, the seller decides they don't want to sell it, the buyer can force the sale and that's specific performance. And that's generally the most common uh, place that it's done. In this case, there's more complexity though, because if the judge, if, if let's say this was an all cash deal, the judge could order specific performance because he could, she could order Elon to perform. But here, there's a financing contingency, and there's a bunch of lenders involved, and none of the lenders are parties to the action. So the judge has no authority over them, so the judge cannot order the lenders to perform, which I think creates a, a real problem in the judge ordering specific performance. And on top of that, people have said, well, if Elon can show that the lenders aren't able to perform, that might be an out, which it might be. And that might just subject him to a $1 billion uh, termination fee. But the way I see it is if Twitter board is seeking basically equity and the judge concludes the value of Twitter has been basically decimated by the actions of Elon, perhaps she could order not specific performance of the transaction, but she could basically order him to pay the difference, the diminution in the value of Twitter. And that could be, you know, that might be $20 billion, could be more, I don't know. Um, but she has pretty wide latitude in what she can and cannot do. So if I were in Twitter's, if I were in Elon's camp, that would be my concern. I think there's, a, unfortunately, it appears that the judge is biased, has some bias against Elon, at least that appears to be the, the reporting. Um, and I saw yesterday that Twitter stated that they got a call from a lender, one of the lenders, and the lender had not even been contacted by Elon yet to, for a de demand to perform and had received no information. And this would have been one of those lenders who would be part of the deal. Uh, and I'm sure Twitter will provide that to the judge that information to the judge. So the question will be if the, if, the lenders can't perform because of Elon, I think the judge is going to hack them. If the lenders independently, because the market's terrible, because they're in a different position, if there's, you know, a, a, you know, a business reason for them, if they have to bail out of the transaction, that might be a different consequence. But I think uh, at this point in time, it's super unsettled. It's so unsettled that if you look at the price of Twitter I think today, I think it's like, under $49. So I, I think I, I kind of speculated like a 15% discount. I think that's kind of where we are right now at 40 or 10 to 15%. But there's enough uncertainty as to whether this deal is going to get done that we're still not at that 5420 price, which is the transactional price. Um, and so I, and to the extent that people were portraying this as settled and done, I think it's far from it.
So I guess one one question that came up to my head is if if the if Twitter agrees to move forward at fifty four twenty, why would there be any quote unquote damages from uh, hurting the stock where Elon would have to produce additional uh, cash? Or did I misunderstand that point? Maybe walk walk. So so let's say let's say it does close at fifty four twenty. Is Elon does Elon have to pay any additional money whatsoever? No. Okay. So so walk me through again when when Elon would need to pay additional uh say what it, that, that 20 billion dollar number you threw out potentially how oh, if, how would that arise again? Yeah. If there's no close and if let's there's no say close. The, okay. Yeah, and let's say the the lenders bail bail on the transaction and the judge concludes that the lenders bailed because Elon kind of kind of made it so uh okay. and and if there's a diminution and the judge wants to provide fairness to Twitter, that's kind of the only remedy that the judge would have. Uh, because if if she just imposes a $1 billion fine on Elon, Elon's walked, he's got a bunch of cash to reinvest in Tesla and pump up his own stock, real, realistically, and he's free and clear. Twitter gets stuck with a company that's worth now half. So I don't think that would be a rep. I don't think that would be a situation the judge would let stand. But but why would and, Twitter and, not? And I actually, sorry. I should say one more thing. Delaware is specific. So Delaware is very favorable for corp, corporate setup. Right. Uh, for privacy reasons and for protecting corporations that uh, are incorporated in Delaware. So the judge is, in essence, kind of uh, carrying out that theme by trying to protect the interests of Twitter. So why would Twitter not want to close if they're getting their original 5420 offer? Like in what and what They realm do want to close at 5420. They just don't believe that Elon is going to close at 5420. They think that he's going to use the contingency that their deal current the only out that Elon has realistically to get out of the deal right now is if the lenders don't come through with the money because the whole deal is I contingent see. on that. Yeah. And so that's what Twitter is basically saying is we think that you're going to back out of this deal and you're going to use the lenders not coming through as the reason to back out of the deal. And so we want to protect our downside for that possibility. I see. And so that's why they're not moving forward. Why would the lenders not come through under this scenario? If they were originally committed at 5420, what has changed? Well, right? the value of Twitter has changed. I mean, if when they made this deal in April, I don't know what value of Twitter was in April. But but ha, has it really materially changed? I mean, what aren't aren't they saying? Well, so so we're saying that the market conditions can influence the lenders to say the original fifty four twenty price was a good deal in April, but now in October with the quote unquote shit show that's happening in the markets and the way Twitter is valued, it doesn't make any sense for us to come forward at 54.20. We can go at 45 or 44, whatever that number is, but 54.20 is too rich, so we're backing out. Well, uh, it's essentially, it's worth yeah. It. yeah, they would say it's not worth it in this market. In this marketplace, it's not worth 54.20. Mm. So and, really, and, come the flip, and the flip side is if, if this the only thing that's keeping the price of Twitter at the at the level it is now <laughs> is this, and if this deal goes south, that this price is going to cut. I mean, I guess that stock will drop fifty percent in a day. I guess so. So what what is I guess my head goes to what is the likelihood that the that the that the funding actually does fall through? You know, like um, and 
say Elon has to sell additional shares? Like, what's the likelihood that he's not able to say there is like a, a few uh, lenders or whatever he's whoever he's partnering to to take the cash? Maybe he can just replace it with other people where he doesn't quote unquote have to sell more shares. Like, what's the likelihood of that? I, I I'm just saying I I believe because I just kind of feels like the other times that he sold. There were a yeah. lot of like, you know, there was murmurs out there. There was nothing concrete, but he ended up selling. Mm. To me, it feels like another one of those rounds. Mm. Uh, the other, I, I guess the number is confusing because I think the number of shares has decreased from the time the deal was done. So mm. the total value of the deal is probably less, even at 54.20. So I don't know what that gap is because it's probably less than what the gap was in the original transaction. But I don't know. But it feels like to me that he is, it feels like he has some additional money to raise. And mm -hmm. I would think that if you were a, an institutional investor that had no, I think Morgan Stanley is like one of his lenders, but I think he has a long-term relationship with Morgan Stanley. So I don't think they would bail on him, but there might be other smaller lenders who are, you know, they themselves might be in a more precarious position because of the current economy six months later than when the you know deal was uh, offered and um, they may have their own specific reasons for needing not to go forward i got it uh hans what kind of thoughts do you have about uh, sorry richard wasn't sure if you're done oh i was gonna say one other thing you know what mostly these banks get out of these deals they make fees on the transaction so maybe morgan stanley stanley might make a billion dollars on a, a you know big transaction but then they're a lender and they, you know, they're behind, they're behind the equ behind equity, and they're at risk. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. got it. Go ahead, Hans. So my thought, just like trying to understand the different actors, if if I was Twitter and Elon was hesitant to say, yeah, I'm not going to, like, I'm going to give up my last contingency, that I'm going to perform on this regardless. That would be quite a signal that, yeah, he really, really does want to go through. And that's basically what they're testing him on. Like they're throwing that out there to see like, how much do you really want to close this? Oh, you, you're not willing to say that you'll close it at this price, regardless of lender performance. Now I'm a little bit worried. Um, from Elon's perspective, I don't think that he wants to give that up because I think that he has obligations to a lot of people that he's raised money from, and he doesn't want to basically dilute the potential value that other investors have committed at. Um, and he specifically probably doesn't want to sell more shares in Tesla since he's told people that he was not going to do that. And so it's a bad look for him. Hey, I'm done selling. Oh, wait a second. Now I do have to sell a couple more billion dollars worth of shares to close this deal. Um, so I think it really is important to Elon to keep his word, if at all possible. Uh, it may not be possible, but I don't think he wants to sell any more shares to close this deal specifically because he said he was not going to. But you know, if I'm Twitter and I'm looking at it, I'd be skeptical. Like, I don't know if you really want to close this deal or not. This has kind of been a crap show. Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's also kind of governed, I think, by Twitter's attorneys, uh, because I think they're in a tight, tight position too. If they, if they tell their client to affirm the deal as is, and the deal goes south because the financing part goes south, I think Twitter's going to go back to their attorneys. If the court orders the tr the transaction closed on the terms as is, 
then the kind of attorneys are out of the picture in my mind. And it might be in a, a, a partly governed by the, the, the risk aversion by the attorneys. And that's why, you know, you heard, you heard, yes, I think there were a bunch of comments on Twitter, you know, they won't accept a yes for an answer. You know, that there was, was, there was some Elon, I think said that yesterday. And so that's what occurs to me is maybe the attorney and it's a big firm. I, I, there are big firms involved. They have, obviously there's a huge potential exposure if they goof. So it might be the case that they all feel safe if the judge uh, just issues the order and whatever happens, happens after that. But everybody is kind of uh, indemnified in a way that way. So Richard, what do you, as far as the butt covering um, desire by the board, like how much of this is them, like if, if they don't get this deal to close at 5420, I think they're gonna get sued like from here to kingdom come, right? So yeah. how much of this is just risk aversion by the board? Like we really need to absolutely 100% ensure that it closes at 5420 just so that we can minimize our litigation. Yeah, in, in part it is, um, but there is some number at which they're, because they'll, their counsel is going to tell them, you, you know, you're going to have X percent that you're going to lose this, this case might be 12%, 15%, and it's all kind of like guesswork, but you can kind of give a, an estimate. So there is some number that you could sell as being a reasonable number with, you know, considering all risks, but yeah, to, but to a large extent, if the deal's closed, then the board has kind of done what they said they did. And if there's negative ramifications afterwards that they have to chase Elon because of the issue of the debt financing or whatever, that's kind of like outside of their control. But yeah, I agree. I think that is a way of the board kind of uh, insulating themselves. Well, and one more thought on the, you know, the back and forth so far, depending on how much of a discount Twitter gave Elon to take the dependence on the debt financing going through, like they may have been willing to discount the entire deal by the amount that was being debt financed. And if he said no to that, like, I definitely understand, like, that's kind of a red flag if you're sitting in Twitter's position. Yeah, I don't think they did because I think that the debt part was 13 billion something on 13 to 15, something like that. Okay, so and it's more than, I, yeah, it's like 30% or something. Of the yeah, deal. something. Yeah, and that's the and, and that's the point. The, the discount he asked for was 30%. So maybe Elon was, and I, I think that makes sense. I think Elon would rather yeah. not be attached to lenders. He'd rather have this deal mm -hmm. on his own. So if he could get the deal on his own and not have any lenders attached, that would be kind of the perfect uh, position. And what I was going to say is there probably is some point between 30% and 10% where Elon would waive that condition, where he thought it was cheap enough and he could figure out a way of making it work and he had enough money. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is, and we kind of talked about this earlier, and I thought I was a little concerned about this, Gary Black, and you know, this is my interpretation of his comments, but Gary Black kind of suggested that Elon did, did need to raise some additional capital and kind of was, or he was concerned he might do kind of a pump and dump. And that the reason why the semi, there was an announcement yesterday that the semi was in production and was going to be uh, sent to Pepsi, I think, December 1st. And he was concerned that timing was not coincidental and it was part of the process to raise the price of the stock 
up through earnings date, which I think is the 19th. And that the 28th, the date that we had spoken about earlier was a quote unquote, a closing date uh, for the Twitter transaction. So if it was theoretically a closing date, he would have like nine days to make a sale uh, at a higher price and raise the difference. And um, if that's what happened, uh, that would be really troubling for me. So if this did go to court, I guess sticking back just a little bit and then I can come back to Gary's comments. Um, if this did go to court, is it possible that the judge could say, yes, Twitter, you need to accept the offer sans debt financing at whatever he can produce, whether it's 40, uh, you know, whatever the 30% off is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 billion instead of 44? Um, yes, the judge could. I just don't think that the judge would because that would penalize Twitter. I just don't think the judge, if the judge kind of in essence is going to favor Twitter, I think the judge will try to make sure they get full value. But that might be the best outcome for the Twitter shareholders. Like as far as the amount of money, they may end up being made the most whole, if at all possible at that point in time. But does the does the judge care about the shareholders or do they care about the corporation, I guess, or is there any distinction? In, in this case, I don't think there will be a distinction. I think the judge will be trying to protect, you know, the, the corporation, but the individual shareholders are the ones have the most to lose in this particular case. I was going to say is I was going to say one other point. There is no date that this transaction has to close by. So I know there was a, a reference to October 28th, but that's just merely as to the date when the judge will set a trial date in November. And typically what happens, and I, and to be honest, I would not expect them to settle this without having the hammer of the trial over their head. So they may be in negotiations through the 28th, but in most case, you know, and it's possible it may resolve by the 28th, but most cases I've been in, you don't. And it's much closer to the end when you have that greater urgency. And it doesn't seem like Elon is in any hurry to close this or, you know, conclude this. So I'm expecting that if it's settled, it would be after the 28th and before the trial date. And yes, the judge would probably be pissed, you know, but but that's but so be it. But the judge won't reject a uh, an agreement after October 28th. I think that's kind of was how it was portrayed, like a deal had to be done by a particular date. That's just not not the case. Got it. Um, are you both familiar with All In podcast? I think Hans, you are. Richard, do you know All In podcast? Have you heard of that? I have not. Okay, so it's it's uh it's just a bunch of like four billionaires sit together and talk about a bunch of stuff. And I think last night uh, Oliver mentioned this in the comments. Uh, looks like Chamath explained this on All In podcast last night. It's not so much about the Twitter, uh, the price of Twitter. And Chamath is somebody who's, um, you know, he was the SPAC king and all that stuff. So he's sure. been part of a lot of these different things. Um, I pulled up the video. It's uh, the Twitter segment's about 14 minutes long. It dropped about seven hours ago. Would you guys be willing to just listen to at least part of it and react sure. to it? Are you guys sure. comfortable with that? Yeah, okay. sure. put it on like one and a half speed and then it'll only take us 10 minutes. Perfect. Look at that. We're so smart. Right um, all right, so let me. 
Okay. But we'll have so, to apologize for the people who listen to this in the future on two times speed because <laughs> it's going to be, crazy. It's gonna be <laughs> real fast. I, how about this? I'll start at 1.25 and then we'll take it from there. How's that sure. sound? So we don't sure. make sure people don't ears don't. So if you if you all don't mind, uh, go on mute so that uh, we don't get a uh, double echo and then uh, take notes or whatever you'd like. And here we go. Reported that Elon uh, contacted Twitter's board and suggested that they move forward with closing the transaction at the original terms and the original purchase price of $54.20 a share. In the couple of days since then, and even as of right now with some news reports coming out here on Thursday morning, um, it's, it appears that there are still some question marks around whether or not the deal is actually gonna move forward at $54.20 a share because Elon, as of right now, the, the report said, is still asking for a financing contingency in order to close. And there's a lot of back and forth on what the terms are. Meanwhile, the court case in Delaware is continuing forward on whether or not Elon uh, breached his terms of the original agreement to close and buy Twitter at 54.20. As we know, leading up to the signed deal or uh, post signing the deal, Elon put together a financing syndicate, a combination of debt investors as well as equity co-investors with him to do the purchase of Twitter at $54.20 a share. So the 40 some odd billion dollars of capital that's needed was committed by a set of investors that were gonna invest debt and equity. And there's a big question mark now on whether or not those investors want to or would still consummate the transaction with Elon given how the markets have turned and given how debt markets are trading and equity markets are trading. So Chamath, I'd love to hear your point of view on what um, hurdles does Elon still have in front of him? Does he still want to get this done? And is there still a financing syndicate that's standing behind him at the original purchase price to get it done? That's a great question. Um, maybe the best way to start is, Nick, do you want to queue up what I said in August 25th? The lawsuit really boils down to one very specific clause, which is the pinnacle question at hand, which is there is a specific performance clause that Elon signed up to, right? Which, you know, his lawyers could have struck out and either chose not to or, you know, couldn't get the deal done without. And that specific performance clause says that Twitter can't force him to close at 54.20 a share. And I think the, the issue at hand at the Delaware Business Court is going to be that because Twitter is going to point to all of these, you know, gotchas and disclaimers that they have around this bot issue as their cover story. And I think that really, you know, this kind of, again, builds more and more momentum in my mind that the most likely outcome here is a settlement where you have to pay the economic difference between where the stock is now and 5420, which is more than a billion dollars, or you close at some number below $54.20 a share. And I think that that is like, you know, if you had to be a betting person, that's probably, and if you look at the, the way the stock is traded, and if you also look at the way the options market trades, that's what people are assuming, that there's a seven to $10 billion swing. And if you impute that into the stock price, you kind of get into the $51 a share kind of a, an acquisition price. Again, I'm not saying that that is right or should be right. That's just sort of what the market says. Yeah, so so I, it turns out that, you know, sort of like that kind of guesstimate turned out to be pretty accurate because the stock today is at $51 a share. So I think that the sp specific performance thing is exactly what this thing has always hinged on. And I think that there was a realization that there were very few outs around how that contractual term was written and agreed to. So there is an out in the contract. And that out says that I think it's by April. If um, if the deal doesn't get done by April, then the banks can walk away from their commitment to fund the debt. And if the banks walk away, then Elon does have a financing contingency that allows him to walk away. So the actual set of events that have to happen is those two things specifically. Get to April so the banks can pass and say, we've changed our mind, market conditions are different. And then Elon is able to say, oh, you know, the banks just walked away. Right now, the banks, if you look at all of the debt that they've committed to, well, they committed at a point in time when the debt markets were much better than they are today. In the last, you know, six or seven months since they agreed to do this, the debt markets have been clobbered. 
and specifically junk bonds and a bunch of junk bond debt, the yields that you have to pay, so the price to get that kind of debt has skyrocketed. So roughly back of the envelope math would tell me that right now the banks are offside between one and $2 billion because they're not gonna be able to sell this debt to anybody else. So I think the banks obviously want a way out. Uh, the problem is their only way out is to run the shot clock off until April. So I think that's the dance that they're in right now. Elon's trying to find a way to solve, you know, for the merger. I think Twitter's going to say, we're not going to give you a financing contingency. You have to bring the banks in and close right now. And then we will not go to court. Otherwise, we're going to court. And so I think it's a very delicate predicament that they're all in. But my estimate is that the equity is probably 20% offside. So it's not a huge thing. He can make that up because he can create equity value like nobody's business. The debt is way offside by a couple billion dollars, which is hard to make back. But I think in the end, you know, given enough time, they can probably make that back. The best off in all of this are the Twitter shareholders. They're getting an enormous premium to what that company is worth today in the open market. And so I think this deal is going to close. It's probably going to close in the next few weeks. And had you bought Twitter when we were talking about it in August, you would have made 25% in six weeks. And, you know, if the deal closed at 54, you, you would have made, you know, a third of your money in eight weeks, which is, you know, very hard to do in a market. If you're a GP at one of the funds, like Andreessen or Sequoia, and you had made this commitment to Elon or even Larry Ellison a couple months ago, do you fight against closing at 5420? Do you stick with the deal and support him? I mean, what do you do given that the premium is so much higher than where the market would trade it at today? Some people are saying the stock should be like 20 bucks a share or something. The average premium in an M&A transaction in the public markets is about 30%. So, um, and I think the fair value of Twitter is around 32 to 35 bucks a share. So, you know, it's not like he is massively, massively overpaying. And so, you know, I would just sort of keep that in the realm of the possible. So like if you take $35 as the midpoint, fair value is really 45, 50. So yeah, he paid 20% more than he should have, but he didn't pay 100% more. So it's not as if you can't make that equity back as a private company, particularly because there's probably $10 of fat in the stock. If you think about just OBEX, right. in terms of all the buildings they have, maybe they don't need as many employees, maybe they revisit salaries. You know, one thing is when I looked at doing an activist play at Twitter, I think I mentioned this, five or six years ago, one of the things that I found was at that time, Twitter was running their own data centers. And you know, the most obvious thing for me at that time was like, we're going to move everything to AWS. Now, I don't know if that happened, but I'm sure that if it hasn't, just bidding that out to Azure, GCP, and AWS can raise you know three or $4 billion because I'm sure those companies would want this kind of an app on their cloud. So there's all kinds of things that I think Elon can do as a private company to make back maybe the small bit that he overpaid. And then he can get to the core job of rebuilding this company to be usable, or this product to be usable. Because I, look, I'll just speak as a user right now. It has been decaying at a very, very rapid clip. And I think that his trepidation in closing the merger, in part also, even though he hasn't said it, has to do with the quality of the experience. It's just degraded. It's not as fun to use as it was during the pandemic um, or even before the pandemic. So something is happening inside that app that needs to get fixed. And if he does it, he'll make a ton of money. Sort of like what happened with Friendster and MySpace and any social networking app over time, the quality degrades. If it's not growing, it's shrinking. And it gets- If, uh, it, if, it's, if it's not growing and also if the product hygiene isn't enforced in code and product hygiene in this case are this, you know, the spam, bots, you know, the trolling, it can really take away from the experience. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, like if you think back to the, orig the, the, the starting days, the original days of Twitter, I don't know if you guys remember, you would send in an SMS to do your tweet. And then it would post up and other people would get the SMS notification and um, it would crash all the time. And the apps were, were the app was notoriously crashing. It was uh, poorly architected at the beginning. And some people have argued that Twitter has had a cultural technical incompetence from the earliest days. I think that's a little harsh. So I do think, look, Twitter was known for what's called a fail whale. You know, they used to have these fail whales constantly. And they did hire people that attempted to try to fix it. I remember the the, the funniest part of when I went in there and said, hey, here's my plan and here's what I want to do 
is literally a day or two later, the head of engineering quit. I can't remember who his name was, but he was just out the door. Uh, but it is a, I think it is a team that has tried its best, that probably at the edges definitely made some technical miscalculations. Like I said, at that time, the idea that any app of that scale would use their own data centers made no technical sense whatsoever. It made the app laggy. It made it hard to use. It made it more prone to downtime, to your point. But that being said, I would be shocked if they haven't made meaningful improvements because the stack of the internet has gotten so much better over the last seven years. And so to your point, David, if they didn't take advantage of all these new abstractions and mechanisms to rebuild the app or to rebuild search or to rebuild you know, how you know all these infrastructure elements of the app work, I would be really surprised because then what are they doing over there? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, to the point earlier, besides the product points, there was a, a really good a tweet I liked. <laughs> That said, for what it's worth, I think Elon will show us just how lean the Silicon Valley advertising companies can be run. At the very least, it'll be an interesting thought experiment for spectators. Um, is, that a, is that a good enough place to kick off the discussion? You guys want to keep listening? That's enough. Yeah. Okay. I, I think Shamath watched our first 30 minutes. <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the past. <laughs> yeah, in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I kind of give my initial takeaways. I think you both are a little bit, uh, not a little bit, quite a bit more well-versed in this realm than I am. But my takeaway seems like if for whatever reason, we talked about this already, I think. So this is kind of like, it was kind of cool that uh, we had a little bit of overlap of thought between the two. Oh, by the way, for those that, that don't know what we just played, I definitely want to give a shout out to this. Uh, this was a clip from the All In Podcast. All In Podcast, uh, you can find that on YouTube. Uh, it's a uh, it's a great podcast. Highly recommend it. If you don't know what it is, please go do check it out. Uh, all in podcasts. Um, the so my th so what it seems like is just from that conversation, uh, Twitter shareholders will win regardless of what happens as long as the deal closes or doesn't close because someone's going to have to pay the difference uh, of, of what happened right if, if the deal closes they get paid if it doesn't close then elon is very likely to lose a trial that says that he has to cover the damages he has caused by walking away from the deal so so cool so one party is already forcing twitter should be forcing well i guess they don't really care what happens because they're going to get paid regardless so really it comes down to are the lenders willing to move forward with the deal in the current market conditions versus uh, versus essentially forcing Elon to drag this out to April of 2023 so he can walk away and then the then the, the equation turns to the how badly does Elon want this platform and if he wants it really badly and if lenders are saying you know what I'm not really sure let's wait until April he could just very well say well screw you I'm just going to do it myself and then move forward and try to work to, with Twitter to make that happen right and this is kind of like what we've talked about as well um what what was your takeaways from the discussion I guess I did have one question that came up during the discussion and that is how much does Twitter not agreeing to because basically you know elon said i'll perform the deal just under the original stipulations that we began with so if twitter does let this go to court and doesn't accept that deal how much ammunition does that give elon's side in the case to say you know they were fine with this when we began the deal the fact that they're not closing kind of nullifies the benefit that they might have had going into the trial if I hadn't offered at full price. I, I think that's why they said yesterday uh, that they contacted a lender and the lender hadn't even heard from Le Elon. Uh, 
So they're going to say that his proposal to close a deal is bullshit because he, he's not in a position to close a deal. And as a result, we couldn't accept it. So we had to, we had to get the court's order. And, and I was going to say is in response to what you said, Farzad, about the, the uh, shareholders being taken care of, I, I, there is a circumstance where maybe they are, they're not. Um, so there obviously is a, a diminution value of the company if the deal doesn't close. But I don't know if it's all attributable to Elon because there's one whistleblower and maybe the allegations of the whistleblower kick, you know, decrease the value 5%. Apparently there's a second whistleblower uh, who has additional um, allegations unrelated to the first whistleblower. And that might have some value in the diminution. The market itself might play in some factor. So, you know, I'm, and I'm making up numbers, but let's say it's, it's, it's gone down by 20%, maybe Elon's 50% responsible. So in that case, the shareholders would not get 54.20. They might get 44.20 or whatever. So I don't think there's certainty in any, again, it's because it's an equitable action and it gives the judge more discretion to kind of shape the remedy. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's what makes all the lawyers uncomfortable. Mm. Okay. Go ahead, Hans. So then, yeah, to move on to the kind of the second half of the discussion where Chamath was talking about, okay, so if Elon does have the company, like how much room is there to recreate value out of Twitter? And I think that, you know, Twitter is a great example. And this is one of the things that was just registering as I was listening to it of just how hard it is to get a premium software product on the market that you really need the best of the best of the best engineers. And unfortunately the, you know, the maybe counterintuitive thing about it is, and that's all you need. You don't need an army of B engineers. You need 50 A plus plus engineers and you cannot with a bunch of money throw. Yeah a million B engineers at a product and compete with a hundred A plus plus engineers. Um, and so that's, what's going to happen is, and it'll be a tumultuous thing. I really liked, um, the guy from Ted, Chris, uh, he had a little thread on how he expects all of this to play oh, out, yeah. assuming that Elon closes the deal. And I think he's exactly right. I think that, yeah, if Elon gets in there, he slashes the cost structure of this business, down to nothing. And then we'll see, you know, Matt's assessment of just how efficient Tesla is with their R&D. You know, how incredible is what they've been been able to accomplish with FSD at Tesla based on the amount of R&D spend that they have. Like it's just insanely efficient. And so if he can assemble a team inside of Twitter, which I know that Gary doesn't think that he can do, but to me it's obvious that he can do. Not only is he an engineer? Like he, it's like people just forget that he already did this with PayPal. Like he, cre he hand coded X.com himself. It's not like he doesn't understand how to create software products that people love and create massive amounts of value, um, both in private and public companies. And, um, 
Yeah, so I absolutely think that he can assemble a team at Twitter of some incredible engineers. In fact, he probably already has a at least you know special ops group of the people that he's going to deploy ready to go they're kind of working on some solutions and then as soon as the deal closes they're going to hit the ground running and then it'll be a process of calling a whole bunch of employees and programs and things that are just not necessary you know they have seen exponential growth in revenue but the problem with twitter is that their exponential cost structure outpaced their exponential revenue growth. Right. Um, and so there's just so much fat in this company. Um, and then, you know, as users, we all know that the platform is just a tiny fraction of what it could be. And that's just if Twitter was what Twitter could be. Now, if you say, okay, stop thinking about Twitter as what Twitter is. Let's start thinking about Twitter as just a different starting point for the X app. And that product is probably 10 more or 10 times more valuable than the best version of Twitter that we wish Twitter was today. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a credible amount of upside in this deal. I would totally invest in it. I think, you know, if I could buy into the private deal at 5420, I would expect in 10 years to probably at least 20x my money. Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. I was going to say, Chamath said that, and this was the number we came up with uh, for a different reason, but he said like 46 bucks a share would have been a fair deal. Um, so, and that's kind of the number we threw out, I think last week or the week before. And in terms of the efficiency, um, Matt was mentioning, and I, these are rough numbers, but I think the R&D for uh, Tesla was something on the order of either 2.5 or 2.9 billion and Meta in doing their conversion to the metaverse, 29. which apparently is not done yet. Yeah, it was like 29, like 10 times the cost. And uh, at the same time their cost went up, their revenue is kind of like stagnated. So, it's, and Tesla's the reverse, right? At the, at the same time they're improving, their revenue is going up, That the, the correct direction. Um, the other thing that, that Hans mentioned about uh, the X app, which I was thought was interesting, and you know, there's it's no, there's nothing specific or concrete about it. But I saw references to including you know Starlink and Tesla and SpaceX, and and I know Dave Lee I believe was a big proponent of like uh, that having like basically a holding company of all yeah. the various entities, and I don't know if I'd really be in favor of that. Um, and I know the, you know, this is a kind of a pun. I understand the upside, but SpaceX is problematic, I believe, because all you need is basically one event. And, you know, if you run it long enough, there'll be an event. You know, if you do it long enough, you know, it's run by humans, at least now, there'll be some mistake and some event. And, and that will be a giant liability. And it'll be a liability on everything. So I, I, I like the idea of the app, like in the idea of like a PayPal app that does many things. And I think they compared it like 10 cent was a comparison. WeChat. WeChat. Yeah, I like that idea, but I don't like the idea of Tesla being tied to SpaceX. That's my, my, I, my I don't 
think it will be at this point. I think his comments at AI Day 2 about how it's good that Tesla is a public company and Tesla is probably the one that will make progress towards AGI, that I think in his mind now that what Tesla is doing is always going to be its own silo and that there's not going to be any commingling of that with other things for that specific reason. Yeah, I would love to invest in SpaceX, but kind of as a spec investment and on its own. And if it goes Separate south, entity. yeah, if it goes south, then so be it. But I really, because obviously, if SpaceX is a huge success, that's going to be worth trillions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So there was a. Uh... Uh, Hans, you mentioned the Chris Anderson uh, thread. I do want to read through it because it is quite uh, it's a very interesting insight into how different ways are thinking about this Twitter thing closing. We're talking about X a little bit uh, real quick. Somebody asked what type of event what uh, uh, that would happen. I, th I mean, I think the obvious one here is God forbid something happens with the astronauts going to space and it's a failed mission and they they die. That would be catastrophic to not just those people and their families, but anything that's uh, related to that sort of event. If, if it's under one umbrella and Tesla's part of that X thing and SpaceX part of that X thing, X becomes significantly less valuable because of something like that happening. So that's the sort of event. I think that's what you're assuming, right, Richard? That's the sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, and I, I think the person asked about insurance. Yes, you can insure it. But if you're insuring like a trillion dollar loss, the premium is going to be astronomical anyway. And on top of that, it doesn't make a difference if it's insured. It's the impact of to the company. If you know, if you have a, a accident, people are going to flee from the stock. That's just right. going to what's going to happen. Yeah. So that's it, it, even well, if and it's also going to massively slow down whatever your plans are. So before the event, there's going to be an expectation of future results that's not going to really have Correct. that priced in, and then that's going to happen. You're it's right. going to slow everything down, and that's going to have an incredible impact on the business's ability just to operate on the same plans and timeframes that they were before. Yeah. And, it, you know, it could really be a massive um, just deterrent and slow down the human expansion into space. Um, and so, yeah, really we're on a whole number of fronts, just hope that we never see that. Yeah, for sure. Plus there's no guarantee that anybody will write insurance. You know, there's some risk that pe that they don't write insurance for. And what happens if Elon has to be self-insured? So he's at risk. You know, that's a big risk, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to be at risk. You know, California, in Southern California, we're in fire country. And Malibu is a really nice place, except to get fire insurance in Malibu is really difficult. So there are a lot of homeowners in Malibu who have no fire insurance. And they're kind of betting that they escape fires while they live there risky business uh let me go ahead and uh read through this uh threat real quick because there's some pretty uh eye-opening sort of uh at least from what i remember reading the threat uh this is uh chris anderson on twitter ted chris um sort of talking about x and twitter within that context uh, amidst all the sneering i'd like to offer a prediction for how the elon musk acquisition of twitter will play out first of all i think the deal will indeed go through now this was on October 5th when this was uh, tweeted out, so two days ago, uh, backed by an impressive roster of co-investors. Next, the company will undoubtedly experience a period of significant turmoil. There's a lot of change ahead. Many won't like it, but 
it will gradually become clear that a lot of the changes are actually quite exciting. First of all, fears of all content moderation being abandoned will prove unfounded. Instead, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the algorithm will be adjusted to avoid giving so much amplification to political divisiveness. The debate that matters is not about who is on or off the platform, but what type of tweets get amplified if that can change everything changes. Next, steps will be put in place to verify all human Twitter accounts. That process will lay the basis for those accounts to be used for transactions a la WeChat using a Twitter crypto coin or USD. For example, people may be offered paid subscriptions and receive usable tokens. This could bring the company significant revenue, plus create its own economy on which goods and services can be transacted. The sheer scale of Twitter can rapidly bring this to critical mass. So this is sort of like a, uh, you know, it's not really required to like be on ad revenue necessarily. They can use different ways of raise money for the, for the company. Uh, about a year from now, growing numbers of people will be attracted to Twitter and X. Oh, slash X, it will be far less prone to robo spam and algorithm fuel outrage. Instead, it will offer lots of new functionality. There's plenty Elon Musk can be legitimately criticized for. <clears throat> Excuse me. His own use of Twitter can seem ill advised. He can give the impression of being more political than he is. And there's no question there will be many bumps along the way. But this is the key point. As a tech entrepreneur, he is without peer. In 2013, I predicted he could become the world's richest man within a decade check, so on and so forth. Fixing Twitter may be as hard a job as converting Teslas into Robotax is improving the viability of a monster rocket capable of taking humanity to Mars. But within three years from now, uh, I predict he will be accomp have accomplished in all three. So what's interesting about this thread, uh, not investment advice, obviously. Um, so what's interesting about this thread, this is somebody who has interviewed Elon multiple times on the TED stage, somebody that um, I, don't, I, I really haven't seen him talk about other, I guess, founders in this way. So it's interesting to get his viewpoint. And there seems to be this sort of... Um, starting to become a uh, I'm seeing more voices that are that are coming through and saying hey we think that if Elon does indeed end up with Twitter or some sort of X platform it will become a force to be reckoned with and it will be something that's going to ch materially change how people transact uh, how people communicate with each other Mike most uh the thing that I'm most curious about is how it's going to change the uh, the landscape of media. So what is the next generation of media? That's going to be very fascinating to watch, especially now that I'm a I'm a I guess part of the media in some way, and I'm a content creator. Like how what what am I in for with this thing, and and how can I use the platform to bring good right to to move society forward? So that's extremely exciting to think about. Um, what kind of thoughts go through your heads? I know Hans, you kind of started down this path, but what sort of things come up? So first, you know, the other comment that Chris basically gets to interview any founder that he wants ever, he's talked to an incredible number of incredible people. And so, you know, his bologna sauce filter and his assessment of who the best tech entrepreneurs are is definitely up there. You know, it's probably top, 0.1% of people in their ability to evaluate that. Um, so, you know, I think that is meaningful to take into account here. Uh, second of all, I think we also can't underestimate the preference falsification that goes on in Silicon Valley. So that's people- What do you mean by preference publicly falsification? saying that they support the current thing, whatever the current thing is, but privately uh, thinking that it's crazy uh, and not just crazy, but batshit crazy, but they can't say that. Mm. And so 
there is probably an undercurrent of a lot more support for Elon lopping the head off of this particular crazy ass instantiation of tech um, than anyone will see coming because no one is publicly willing to admit that they want to see this deal go through. They want to see the changes to Twitter. They don't want to have all this political outrage fueling everything. Um, and so, you know, from that standpoint, I view it as highly likely that he will be able to assemble a group of investors to make sure this deal closes, uh, to be able to fix the things that need to be fixed. Um, just on, on that point alone. So, yeah. Which, which kind of was reinforced by the, those tweets or those texts being released uh, for the court proceedings. There were a lot of people that were like, yo, let me hop on this train with you. <laughs> which so, was fascinating. Conspiracy, yeah. or not conspiracy, but just, uh, I would love for the sake of irony, it would be amazing if the PayPal mafia reassembled to do this deal <laughs> and then build what PayPal was supposed to be, even though at the time they didn't all want that. To, I mean, it was all of that disagreement about what PayPal should be that got Elon ousted as CEO in the first place. So yeah, if they all came back in now and helped do this deal and let him run with it the way that he wants to and give him, I mean, just think about the culture today and how founder friendly it is compared to 2000. And um, yeah, like I think a lot of people, you know, I wonder how much Elon's, um, you know, is it just a symbol of the time that he was not allowed to continue on with his plans as the CEO? And now it's a different time. And so he could, or, you know, how much was his ouster kind of something that actually catalyzed change in the Silicon Valley VC culture and tilted things in the favor of founders? Or was that just, simply, hey, uh, uh, basically a product of the free money that founders became more powerful because there were more, they basically, it was a founder's market, that there was so much money chasing after opportunities that it didn't matter how good of a founder you were or how good at executing you were. And so there were a lot more founders uh, who were all getting funded. And so VCs then had to become more founder friendly in order to win deals. You know, that's probably more likely, but I just think it's interesting to think about, you know, if, if Elon were to found PayPal today, he would have been given a lot more freedom than he was back in the late nineties, early two thousands. That's a great point. Just for those that are not familiar, I pulled up uh, the list of members on the PayPal mafia. So folks like Peter Thiel, uh, Elon Musk, obviously, uh, we have uh, David Sachs. We have uh, there was another person here who uh, Steve Chen, co-founded YouTube. Uh, so if you link, if you look through this list, these are very, very, very impressive people that have a lot of money now. So yeah. uh, it's full, it's a fascinating thought. Yeah, full disclosure, uh, I'm not related to Reed Hoffman. Okay, okay, Just let's let's make sure that's the case. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Richard? What kind of goes uh, through your, through uh, your head? Yeah. Now? So first, the shocking. Uh, change is going to be uh herbert deese is going to be the new ceo of twitter it's shocking. <laughs> shocking. well i was uh i was wondering i was wondering who he, could, who he would make you know i don't think elon would run it day to day so would somebody like jack dorsey would be or is elon pissed at dorsey uh, because obviously elon had conversation or i don't know obviously 
it, it seems like Elon did discuss the Twitter deal with Dorsey. If Dorsey was 100% forthright, you know, about what was going on, fine, but it's possibly wasn't. And they may not be as in, on as good a terms as they were. But Dorsey and, and Elon seem to be aligned at least one point in time. And maybe that's somebody who would be in a position to run Twitter. I don't know, like a day to day. Um, and maybe Twitter will acquire uh, Palantir and Square to get the whole gang together. Um, <laughs> but my my biggest concern about Twitter, I, I, I have no concern that Elon will find out a way to monetize and commercialize it because he's a brilliant guy and he has that skill set. I don't think he has any special, you know, maybe as an engineer in, uh, you know, as to SpaceX, he really does have a, a special talent. I don't know if his talent in social media is such a uh, great expertise that it puts him above anybody else. And maybe it would be better served if he wasn't uh, actively involved in the day-to-day -day operations of Twitter. But my great, greatest concern is to the extent it would take away his time. You know, if he's basically going to build, literally going to build a new company, and I know he's got, you know, he's amazing in terms of his ability to work but you know, you only still have so many hours. Um, so that's my concern. If he can, you know, set up the basic the 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 plan and have others execute it, that's great. But if he has to spend too much time in resurrecting the platform, um, I'm not sure. I, I have some concern that it might take away time from Tesla. And I don't know, like you know, in order of of him personally, whether Mars is more important for him than Tesla. I don't know. I don't really know the order of his. I understand, like, you know, his environmental concerns and concerns for his planet. But I think for himself, his ending place is not this planet. So I don't know if, like, he's has to spend more time in another endeavor that is kind of collateral to Mars but doesn't push it forward if he'd be interested in that. So I think it signals a shift in his time frame that he views existential risk over that I think Tesla and SpaceX, you know, those are like mid to long term existential risk plays. And the X app is a much more immediate existential risk play. And I think he's feeling a lot like the present risk of something really bad happening to humanity is dramatically increasing. And that's why he's shifting or starting to give a little bit more focus to something that's here and now, uh, much more than something that's going to play out over the next few decades. And I mean, that's, that's one portion of the whole deal. I lost, uh, there was another point that I was going to follow. No, you're fine. That, I, lost I think what's the, the one interesting thing you brought up, Richard, is like, you know, there, there might be a situation where Elon uh, being part of the Twitter build out could be risk, uh, could risk other companies or his ability to execute uh, in certain uh, situations. I think, I don't think Elon would have even thought about taking on Twitter unless that bandwidth was available in the first place. So the way I think about it is the time spent on Twitter is not time he would have spent at Tesla. 
is that it's time that Elon has allocated to something else other than his current things because you know let's let's make sure we're we're understanding this point like Tesla and SpaceX do not exist right now unless Elon has delegated 99.9999% of the things that runs the company right so so the the assumption here is that uh, in my head is that these companies are already where they need to be from the standpoint of Elon being able to take other things. Yes. Is Elon doing a lot more than other CEOs would in that role? A hundred percent, probably like a hundred X times more actual <laughs> influence in the company from a, from a design perspective, but it's, it goes from 0.0001% of the work to 0.001% of the work. Right. So it's still a gigantic amount of work is being done outside of his scope. So mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily think that his him taking on Twitter in any way, shape, or form is going to uh, really damage the other companies. What, but what it what it will happen, I think, what will happen is that there will be a team that's assigned to run the day to day of Twitter, and Elon sort of becomes this, uh, you know, maybe a more traditional CEO in that respect. Like, this is where we need to go. I've built out this network. I have these teams. I have these folks that trust my vision. Uh, I'm going to give you the tools to succeed. Let me know what you need from me. But otherwise, I'm going to hold you accountable to extremely tight deadlines and you better innovate in this space as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah. so the, and the, or at least my speculation as far as where that time is coming from, he thinks that FSD and the Starship, like I think he's he anticipates Starship is getting to orbit this year. Yeah. And he anticipates FSD beta wide release this year, and then he thinks that the follow-on to that is that he's not going to be spending as much time on either of those two projects. And so this is kind of a forward-looking, I see some time that is opening, and he probably has more time now already. I mean, it seems like uh, his mental state has been better apart from the whole Twitter deal. Um, so I think he has a little bit more time now, and then he's seeing more time opening up in the not too distant future on those two fronts, and that's where he's anticipating that that's gonna come. Yeah, I think somebody who openly came out and said doesn't like exercise and like he likes eating burgers and now he's making time to actually get in better shape tells me that he's got more mental capacity to do things that he doesn't want to do necessarily, but he's doing it because he he knows he he has so he has more time and he has met, and and he's obviously in a much more relaxed state, which to me like the craziest thing for me, and again, I don't necessarily idolize Elon Musk, but I, I do view him as very inspirational in some things. But the thing that blows my mind constantly is that this guy can look so relaxed and he's running Tesla, SpaceX, and is dealing with this Twitter thing. And it's just chatting and laughing. And, you know, at the AI day two, it looks like he's just having a good time. I'm like, bro, like how, how have you created that separation of like, real life stress versus you living as a human being like something something has happened in his brain that he's been able to just now absorb quote unquote what we would uh, reference as incredible amounts of pain he has now just i don't know he siloed that somewhere else and is no longer pain it's just i this is what it means to be alive this is just what it means to be a human being and he's just accepted that and I don't know. It's it's like a fascinating look into human psychology for me. Like I wish we could mm -hmm. cut open his brain and see how the hell he's processing this stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think he's mastered the ability of of not uh of basically things that he's not capable of controlling, he completely discards and has no anxiety related to it. On the flip side, he works his ass off. So he does everything he can. So if you do everything you can and you have no anxiety about the stuff that you can't do, 
and you are, and plus he's a brilliant guy and has command over, you know, all these subject matters. So he's not feeling at a loss. But if you're able to kind of discard the stuff that's you can't control, that makes you like a unique human being. Because that's the things that, that people that people hang on to stuff. That's what makes them unhappy. Um, and he, again, I think it goes with the fact that he works his ass off. It lets him do that. I think that Elon is somewhat unique in the Silicon Valley tech culture in his appreciation of the value of pain. And I think this is something that you would have experienced definitely, Farzad, like, you know, if you went to work at Google or Facebook or Twitter or any number of Silicon Valley companies, they want to make the entire experience of working for them as positive and rainbowy as possible. And, oh, you need an extra two weeks to finish this assignment. Okay. I think, you know, that sounds reasonable. Mental health. Um, And, you know, which is important. Which is important. I want to live yeah, in yeah. that world. Like I don't yeah, yeah. want to feel pain all the time. But when yeah. it comes to actually moving the ball forward for humanity, doesn't cut it. You need deadlines. You need pain. You need expectations. Um, and I know, like Elon doesn't talk about his childhood, but I can guarantee you that Elon suffered a tremendous amount of personal pain in his childhood that gave him a much higher than average pain tolerance. Um, and potentially even appreciation for the value of pain. And I think this is one of the things that he has built into everything that he does is you have to have that pull. You have to have that thing that's crazy inspiring to run towards. And you also have to have a freaking wolf behind you chasing your butt to get you running at maximum speed. And you need both of those things. Um, and that, so I guess that also plays into how he's able to get so much out of such a small team of exceptionally talented and maybe it's not even exceptionally talented. Maybe it's just exceptionally performing engineers or product people um, is, you know, you could, maybe you could have the exact same a plus plus engineers that I referenced earlier working at Facebook or Google or whatever. And if they don't have the wolf behind them, you're still not getting the same product out. Yeah. Very true. I was going to say as a lawyer, I can, I can identify with that because I have deadlines and, you know, people hate deadlines because they don't like the pressure of the deadline, but a deadline is a gift because it forces you to do something by an X date. And, you know, I was thinking about this, unlike most people where deadline, even with Elon, right? He may say December, 2022, and it could be December, 2024, theoretically, but in my Definitely. world, yeah, right. In my world, if it's due Friday, it's due Friday, and I have yeah. no. There's no out. There's no. Uh, I can do it Saturday, and uh, but after a while, you become accustomed to that too, and the original stress of kind of having to comply with that, you kind of embrace it in some way. It keeps you organized. It keeps you kind of directed and driven, and it makes you much more productive. That's for sure. Yeah, it's the it's Tim Urban's panic monster. So instead of a wolf, we'll we'll put the panic monster in the back. <laughs> Someone just came to a realization: you're a lawyer. <laughs> he hasn't billed me for this podcast yet. Don't worry, guys. He's a good lawyer. Uh, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. There you go. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's a fast. It's a fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, 
we've spent the last hour and seven minutes on this Twitter X thing, uh, and I feel like we can go for another hour on this topic. But uh, maybe let's hit Tesla Semi a little bit. Uh, I know there was news around uh, that being released, talking about hitting deadlines, December first. Uh, <laughs> Tesla is set to ship uh, the first batch of Tesla Semis to Pepsi. Um, what uh, what are your um, takeaways from these news? And I'll pull up the tweet uh, while I start going. Do you guys have any thoughts around Tesla Semi finally hitting the roads? Do you have anything you want to hop in with, Richard? I'll let you take it first. So I, the first thing that I thought when I saw it is not surprised. I really... I was telling the guys earlier, I really anticipated that we were going to see Semi, potentially even Roadster, uh, get announced here soon. Um, you know, we got news earlier, you know, a couple months ago that Tesla no longer feels cell-constrained. And the only thing holding back Semi production has been cell constraints. And so basically the writing was on the wall once that comment was made that we were going to see the Semi start getting delivered. Um, the Roadster, I don't know. Uh, whether we'll see that, I think my personal estimate would be 60, 40, yes, that we'll see a Roadster get delivered in the next quarter. Um, or, you know, potentially by the end of Q1 um, for the same reasons. And then, yeah, that'll be really exciting to have, you know, I loved Rob's comments on those last night that, it's just, this is a new platform for Tesla and it opens up a whole thing. I think at this point, it's something that Wall Street has completely forgotten about and hasn't been modeling. And so now, you know, the Gary Blacks of the world who are show me, don't tell me are going to see deliveries. They'll have some data to point to. It'll be something that they can build into their estimates of the future. Uh, but it's especially exciting to see Semi rolling out with the hopefully impending increased functionality of FSD. Like, you know, if I'm a truck driver and I can reduce the number of incidents that my vehicle is in, regardless of fuel efficiency, regardless of load capacity, like if I can reduce my insurance overhead because there are fewer accidents, like that is also a huge knock on. And then also, you know, just like, it's a lot easier to hire a truck driver for a truck that is a lot easier to drive. Um, so I think there's a number of knock on positive effects that just make semi a no brainer for a lot of people. Um, it will be really interesting to see what the actual pricing ends up being, because I doubt that it's going to be sold for the price that was originally released at. Um, but I I'm incredibly excited. Uh, the other thing is just thinking back to ARK Invest, you know, they had created a lot of modeling around expecting a lot of train transport in the far future when we have basically a, an entire national fleet of pure BEV trucking that it will, and especially if it becomes robotaxi trucking, that it will decrease the cost per mile of transport below rail. And so you can see a lot more point to point transportation of goods and services, which will definitely create a strain on the uh, road infrastructure. Um, but yeah, it's just an exciting future that we get to witness beginning to unfold this year now. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I saw, um, I think it was on Yashu's uh, channel. Uh, he had Meyer on, I forgot the gentleman's last name, and he was talking about it. And he was talking about relative, that he thought that the semi was the means 
to autonomous. Uh, that was the first means that Tesla should go for autonomous vehicles. Um, and it's basically set up that way because those semis are on the highway most of the way, and you can basically do autopilot on the highway or means you could basically do it on the highway. The only issue is the, you know, to the point of destination. And I don't know if he was suggesting it or I heard it somewhere else. Maybe you could use a bot. You'd have a bot placed on the off ramp and the bot would do it the last three miles, or you'd have a truck driver bringing it the last few miles. But he thought that was the best way, you know, he thought it was more important than the Cybertruck, uh, getting the semi out. The question, and, and I think as Hans mentioned, is the, the what they're going to charge. Um, and I think the they had spoken about like 150, 180,000 was the original price. But in the same um, discussion, he was thinking that because you could replace drivers, you could operate 24 hours a day, et cetera, that you might be able to charge 750, 800,000 for a single, single unit. And when you're at that at those numbers, you know, you can imagine what the margins would be at, at, at those numbers. Um, the question I have is because I know this transaction, the one to Pepsi, has been pending for quite some time. So my interest is the number of vehicles that are being delivered. If it's five, that's wonderful. If it's 50, that's better. And if it's 500, that's you know great. Um, but if it's just in a de minimis amount. That's a good start, but it's not material. So I'd, I'd like to see what the numbers are. Good. What are your thoughts, Richard, on the regulatory environment? Like how far are we away from the government being okay with autonomous trucking, even if it is just on the high, like, you know, it's one thing to have an advanced driver assist system. I just can't imagine states being okay with robo trucks anytime soon. Yeah, well, I think the states will do, you know, state by state until there's a federal uh, regulation. Um, the, the government might try to block a state from in, uh, uh, asserting their own regulation because a truck might go across state lines and they might say it might affect interstate commerce. And if it affects interstate commerce, and that's subject to federal um, regulatory control. I think, you know, the problem we might have is the oil lobby at some point in time will not be happy if electric trucks are taking over the roadways and they do have some influence lobbying so i would think the, the regulatory issues will be that will be the biggest obstacle uh is getting enough uh congressmen uh to be on the side of uh, uh moving forward and not being influenced by the oil oil industry. And, you know, uh, that's going to probably make things slower, certainly in like, you know, Oklahoma and those kind of, even Texas, right? There could be resistance. I would expect some resistance. Um, and in terms of national regulatory control, the government moves very slowly. And that seems like a very complex issue um, with a lot of variables. Um, and I worry that Elon doesn't piss off too many people. You know, it would be much better. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it would be much better if he had like, you know, a regular, and maybe he does, maybe he does, but has somebody like regulatory officer and they're responsible for dealing with the government and they have a one-on-one -on -one relationship and he kind of stays away from those uh, uh, areas. That's kind of also, you know, my concern is like when you have the richest guy in the world, who, would, who does he have to account to? 
you know, in the end. And I love him and he's great, but I wish he had, I would prefer if he had somebody to account to, that he would have to kind of reflect, e even though I'm sure he believes whatever he's doing is in the best interest of society and the world, et cetera. I'm sure of that. But I think sometimes it's not a bad if you have to account to somebody else and you uh, will take their opinions and actually take action on their opinions. And I wonder sometimes he might might be a little bit uh, too rigid as to that. You're on mute, Farzad. Look at me. I'm so good at this. Thank you. But your voice sounded uh, great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, the jokester. I love it. Uh, so uh, while you guys were sharing your thoughts, I, I whipped up a quick model on, on Excel. So one of the questions was, okay, so how, how many units do we think uh, Semi is going to be able to sell here? So very, very quickly, very, very, not financial advice. I'm a moron. Do not listen to this, but I'm going to show you anyway. So let's say in 2023, they're able to sell 100 units uh, of Semi. You guys at any point tell me where you think I'm off base if I should go higher or lower because this is kind of like a exercise for those that might be thinking about what is Semi's impact to Tesla's financials potentially from this PepsiCo thing. So let's say in 2023, they're able to sell 100 Semi's uh, ASP of 200,000 because what we talked about before when Semi was uh, unveiled initially was between 150 to 180 for the lower base, but inflation, blah, 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 a bunch of stuff has happened. Um, Pepsi's likely to uh, purchase the, so Elon said 500 mile range, and I'm guessing that's 500 mile at fully load. So that's likely to be the the, the higher trim. Let's just assume conservatively ASP is 200,000. Let's say they're selling it at 40% margin because- I'll stop you the, there. Uh, I'll stop you there. Yeah, so please. Won't there be like uh, lower margins as we ramp up? So I would expect uh, oh, sure. the margins kind of go up as we are able to kind of- no, Let's say zero. Uh, so what margin do you think they can make at a thousand semis? Like what, what kind of, uh, like how many semis do you think Tesla is going to sell at full ramp? Right. Did they ever share that number? And anybody in, in the comments, if y'all have any, any, any thoughts do share it. Cause this is, this is like sort of an altogether exercise. I'm thinking from an economies of scale point, you don't actually get to a positive gross margin until somewhere around 10,000. You probably don't get good margins until you're selling at least you know, 50,000 a year. So let's see how many, how many semi trucks are sold each year. Uh, this is going to be a good one. Estimated heavy truck, uh, duty uh, sales between 2019 and 2021. Uh, so in 2021, 1 1.9 million trucks were sold in where the worldwide. Okay. So, uh, let's, uh, how many of those are sold in the in the U.S.? Can we figure that out somehow? Do we want to assume like twenty percent? Is that a fair assumption? You think twenty percent? I, I so would 20 guess it's more because we have a lot larger. First of all, we have a lot higher GDP, but also a larger land mass, and so okay. we have a lot more transport happening here than a lot of other places. Let's let's go let's go thirty five percent. So thirty five percent of one point nine million. So one nine zero 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 zero. Oops. One nine zero 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 times seven hundred thousand. It's about seven hundred. Yep. And so, and how many semi manufacturers are there in the United States? How many semi manufacturers in the U.S.? Uh, let's see. 
By the way, when I go through my modeling exercise, this is the kind of stuff that I do. And I've already done this for the semi in my in my model, but I want to go through it once more so everybody can see live how. And you don't, one you, don't you don't care in this case whether it's an electric uh, manufacturer or a legacy manufacturer. No, because what I'm trying to get to is like what what is a steady state level of production for a semi manufacturer period and that okay. kind of gives me an idea what, what that's when full margins come to bore you know what i'm saying so there are 18 uh there are many 18 wheeler truck manufacturers in the u.s and every trucking company has a trucker has their favorite um okay that doesn't tell me how many uh if anybody knows how many uh semi manufacturers are on the u.s that would be very very uh helpful okay there are nearly two million semi trucks out yeah. in operation in the u.s but that's the fleet though i believe that's probably the fleet um okay who is the biggest truck manufacturer in the u.s freightliner is the largest truck manufacturer okay so how many many semis did freightliner make a year perfect uh there we go okay there we go oh perfect Perfect. So in 2020, uh, there were a total of, okay, so we're way, way, uh, I'm guessing the United States. Perfect. Okay. So in 2020, let's use 2019 because 2020 was the COVID. 2019, there were 270, roughly call it 260,000 semis sold. Okay. So we were way over 260,000 semis sold. Okay. So and Freightliner was the largest one at 100,000 per year. I think okay. those are the big class eight trucks, but that is what we care yeah. about. Um, yeah, so the, I think the other number included a lot of smaller trucks. Makes sense. Perfect. So a hundred thousand per let's, so, so can we assume that the, that Tesla will reach, uh, quote unquote market dominance when it comes to how many semis they sell per year, like they have in the EV market? Do you think that's a fair assumption that eventually Tesla will get to a hundred thousand semis per year? Is that fair? Nods? Yeah. Okay. So a hundred thousand is is a hundred percent margin essentially. Let's think about it that way. So how long do you think it's going to take Tesla to reach a hundred thousand units per year? What's what kind of ramp? Like five years, six years, ish, something like that. I'm going to say five years. I think longer. Yeah. Right, let's take it to 2030 then. How about that? Is it's a lot of cells is the thing. It's not a lot of units, but it's a lot of cells. Okay. So let's say 2030. If you just joined us on the live stream, we're doing a live model of the semi. Um, so 100,000. Uh, let me go ahead and now you can look at my not very great uh, Excel skills, just somewhat average. Um, let's just, I'm just going to keep it at 200,000 here and then we'll change it. So we'll change it. So in the chat, do drop in your uh, recommendations of what these numbers you think they should be. Uh, let's go currency. Perfect. So then let's say, um, I don't know, let's say 0.8. So let's say maybe the ramp is a little bit slow, uh, slower than a car. Uh, it seems a little aggressive. Something like that. Is that too aggressive, y'all think? 2024, they'll do about 17,000 semis. What do you guys think? It's just, thought, this is how modeling works <laughs> in a yeah, way, I just a the, rough one. I thought the 100 to 17,000 is too big a jump. 70,000 to 100,000 no, is too, yeah, too large? 
the year I think two. they'll do more than a hundred though in 2023. Yeah, I'd say you know if we get a thousand in 2023. Okay. I'd say like we'll probably get like ten next year or this year, hopefully. Right. So I would let's say, say like. 10. I'd say twelve thousand five hundred year that twenty twenty four. Okay. Then twenty three thousand twenty twenty five. Is that fair? Because that, yeah. that's kind of the S curve, right? Mm-hmm. We start hitting the S curve a little bit, and we start writing it up. Okay. Uh, so ASP of two hundred thousand conservatively. Uh, do we think forty percent margin is realistic at full full bore? Yeah. Should be right. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So if they sell a hundred thousand uh semis at an asb of two hundred thousand per unit a margin of 40 percent without any fsd that's eight billion dollars in gross profit okay if they say add fsd just let's just say fifteen thousand dollars per per truck i have i'm just using that as a price now we can kind of talk through the methodology there um the gross profit from FSD will be 1.5 billion because it's basically 100% profit because it's software. That's how Are I you think about it. Uh, basically 100% take rate too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't think. I don't think they buy the semi unless this thing's going to drive itself eventually. Because what the hell is the point of buying it in the first place? Yeah, I agree. Is that fair? Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Um, so then the total gross profit is 9.5 billion dollars which essentially falls to the bottom line because of Tesla's operational leverage, right? So the margin they would earn from the truck should fall directly to the bottom line um, before taxes, right? If we add a uh, PE multiple of, say, 20 on that $9.5 billion of gross profit, this is without taxes being hitting the, the, the line, right? Um, and the taxes will obviously bring this number down. But at 20 PE would add about $190 billion to the market cap. Uh, a 50 PE, excuse me, a 50 PE would add roughly $475 billion to the market cap. And 100 PE would add about a trillion dollars to the market cap. So 100 semis sold per year, which is equal to the largest uh, semi-manufacturer in the U.S., excuse me, yeah, the, the largest semi-manufacturer in the U.S. right now, Freightliner, Class A truck, 2019 volumes was 100,000 per year, which is pre-COVID. I think that's a safe assumption to make, especially as we go in towards more e-commerce, there's going to be more semis. Um, so if we assume that Tesla gets as big as Freightliner, they are asking about $200,000 per unit, sell at a 40% margin, and they add on $15,000 of FSD on top of the truck, they'll add $9.5 billion of uh profit to their bottom line um okay what do you guys want to change about this i'll just say on the demand side of things people who you know might be skeptical of their ability to sell a hundred thousand in the year 2030 um governments are basically going to mandate if the supply is there that people are buying these electric trucks because it's a huge carbon emission source so yeah, like okay. if they can produce 100,000 in 2030, they will 100% sell them. Okay. How about Let me if read you, through some of the comments, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, share your thoughts. Yeah, I was gonna say, how about if you uh, reduce the numbers by, let's say, 10%, but increase the ASP to 300,000? Uh, sure. So 900, 90,000 here, right? Yeah. And then this is 300,000 instead? Correct. Correct. Because I think the price is going to be higher. Than the two hundred thousand. 
Yeah, so it will actually end up adding here. Let me actually put a side by side here. So let's do this guy. Yeah, can we ramp the price up over time? Sure. Of... Um, so this is one model. So let's take this guy here. So this will be 90,000 ramping here, but 300,000 instead, right? So that's what kind of what it looks like. So let's say it starts at 200,000 and it, I don't know. So it's probably not going to be, no. Something like that. Okay. Right? Makes sense? Yes. So, so instead of getting to 100,000, we're saying we're going to do 10% less in volume, but we're going to be selling it at 300,000 instead of 200,000, a 40% margin. You end up adding $12 billion to the bottom line instead of $8 billion. So 50% more. Yeah. What, what other, um, so, and it was somebody in the comments that said that they think, um, that they think 40% margin is too high. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that uh, because these vehicles, you think about the 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 4680 is going to be a, a very efficient platform. And then you're utilizing a lot of parts that you already have in your supply chain to build this out. So a lot of Model 3 parts are going into this thing, uh, as, as Elon stated previously when they were making this thing. So and typically, let, let me just do a Google search and see how much a semi truck usually makes a margin. Go ahead, Hans. I think you were going to say something. Yeah, I, I was curious about that same thing. Like, what are Freightliner's gross margins? But when you think about that, on a two hundred thousand dollar vehicle, that's a cost of production of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So I'm pretty sure that Tesla can produce that for less than one hundred twenty thousand dollars. Like, that's the sale price of a Model X. Right. Some commercial vehicle profit margin. Let's see what they say here. And that's the one thing to like. This is where a lot of the I don't know if any of y'all have been in a semi truck before, but these are uh, a conglomeration of a bunch of like just it's just random pieces thrown together to make this thing happen. There's not much vertical integration <laughs> in making a semi truck. There is like probably the least amount of vertical integration I've ever seen in any vehicle ever. Um, so the opportunity for margin in this in this uh, industry is gigantic, gigantic, at least I believe. Uh, let's see gross margin commercial vehicle yeah so i don't know if this is necessarily a good a good uh barometer but um it's kind of tough to see but anyway um okay does, does freightliner have an electric division does freightliner have ev trucks oh there we go freightliner oh look at look at that well, where do they go okay. uh cascadia and the EM2 uh, on highway, 320 to 470 horsepower, 155, 220 or 2030 typical range. So about half of the Tesla semi, 80% um, and 90 minute recharge. And then the EM2 is 230 target range. I love how they just all have blue lines because they really want to make it obvious as electric, y'all. Um, in 90 minutes. I love how they don't care about aerodynamics. Yeah, the same trucks that we've been making for yeah, the last for 30 real. years. That's is there a exactly price? What we need. Is there a price on these? Let's see. I'll get a quick. By the way, thank thank you for everybody who uh, who has joined us on this uh, live stream. Really appreciate. You. No, they're not being open about. No. So I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess they have some sort of premium. Um 
so this is their Cascadia. I'm guessing this is their their big daddy. Look at how old this thing looks, and they have it being sold as new. Like it tells you just how much innovation is going into the space with the semi, right? Like this this is literally something they're looking to sell right now, and this is what it looks like. Let's see how much this thing this this thing costs. Um, build a Cascadia, hell yeah! You guys want to build a Cascadia? Let's see. We're going to do a 126 inch day cab, which is going to be the largest one. I can literally buy a semi right now. Um, let's make it, I don't know, let's just go uh, red. Okay. <laughs> there. Look at that. Looks hot. Um, materials. I'm just going to leave it. I'll, I'm just going to leave all this stuff. Uh, get a quote. Oh my God. Okay. All right. So you, you have to sort of. Um, Okay, so I don't see anything that would tell us how much this thing costs in person. Uh, does anybody know how much this truck costs, y'all, in the comments? Somebody said you should compare uh, to Volvo trucks. Okay, let's try that. Volvo semi-truck. Um, Volvo trucks for sale. Perfect. Shop Volvo trucks inventory. Perfect. So what we got. Okay, cool. Well, these are used, but these things typically run for millions of miles. So what's this guy? I'm trying to find something that would be in the realm of the price of the semi and see if that would be, let's go from most expensive to least uh, 174,000 is the most expensive. Um, how can I sort by here? I'll do that. Okay, what's this guy? So this one's got 223,000 miles, uh, 174,000. Let's see what kind of uh, stats it's got. It's got an air ride suspension, which I'm sure the semi has. Um, it's got a sleeper, which is like the, like this is where people can sleep back here for those that are not familiar. It is used, so it's not new. It's a tandem axle, which I'm guessing it's the double wheel thing back there. Does it say how much it can haul? It's got to be 80,000 pounds, right? It has to be. Okay. So, yeah. So, a used Volvo of similar specs to the Tesla Semi sells for about $174,000, which would, which would make sense that the Tesla Semi, brand new, is probably closer to two hundred to 250000 based on this without sort of like with similar specs. Is that a fair statement you guys think? I was going to say, but this is not electric, so that's it is not electric. Yeah, so there might be an additional yeah. premium. Yeah, yeah, I would think. Plus, you know, the two hundred twenty-three thousand miles got to have some some value, also. For sure, some sort of depreciation. I mean, these things hold their value extremely well because they they have a gigantic amount of utility. But I guess the thought process is is that okay? So to me, the one my takeaway here is that anywhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand is a realistic price for minimum two hundred thousand. Minimum two hundred thousand is what I'm arriving yeah. at. So this is a very yeah. I mean, we see that price. with EVs that the you know the total cost of ownership is usually lower than gas, but a yeah. higher percentage of that is in the upfront cost, and so you should expect the initial sale price to be higher on an EV just from that factor alone. Yeah, and I was going to say, and and just again because it's electric, it should last a lot longer than the gas powered one. So That's it should correct. have a longer life. Yeah. Okay. And believe me, fleet operators are thinking in terms of total cost of ownership. A hundred percent. 
a hundred percent. Yeah, because you think about um, if you're a fleet operator and you're spending how much on diesel, right? So, what's a uh, diesel? How big is a uh, class A truck gas tank? Well, 150 the real question gallons. Is, what's the gas mileage that they get? It's really low. I think like four miles per gallon, something like yeah. that. Yeah. You're 100% right. Uh, what's the come on, typical class A truck miles per gallon? 5.2. Um, and so, how much is diesel per gallon? Uh, so, 5.2. Uh, 320. Cost, uh, I think it's way more than that. What did you say? 320? Way more You're than that. You're obviously not in California. No, this is Texas. Oh. We actually have decent prices. Let's say four bucks. A current average, 4.43. Okay. So $4.43 per gallon, 5.2 miles, uh, miles per gallon, and then average class eight truck miles per year. 62,700 seems low, but let's see 62,700. Okay. So we're going to do 62,700 miles. We get 5.2 miles per gallon. So it's, uh, uh, 12,000 gallons at $4 and 43 cents per gallon. So the average truck's expenditure and just fuel is, uh, excuse me, $53,000 per truck per year. <laughs> and so, um, Electricity costs are roughly going to be what? Let's just uh, conservatively say one third. Is that a fair number? One third the cost of diesel? I think we can back into it. Just say, um, you know, basically a megawatt hour is the pack and it has 500 miles of range. Mm -hmm. And so you can figure out how many watts of power that we need. Okay. So help um, me with that. So. 500 miles per range. Uh, what's the efficiency on? So how how so a, how big a of a megawatt package? hour is a thousand kilowatt hours. Mm -hmm. And then how big is going to be the pack? So you've basically got two, uh, what two kilowatts per mile there? Two kilowatts per mile. Yep. And so, and what's the average cost of a kilowatt? Uh. That's a great Google question. 13 cents. Thirteen cents. So even if we said it was thirty cents a mile, and then multiply your thirty cents times your it's thirty a lot cents less. times two, right? Times the no, miles, right? Sorry, I was I was saying thirteen cents times two is twenty-six, so I was rounding up to thirty-four. 30 oh, cents I, I, per okay, mile. Got it. So we'll do 13 cents times two kilowatts per mile times 62,000 miles, right? Yep. $16,000. So That's you like would save, fuck, excuse me, $37,000 saved in energy costs per truck. So you could theoretically bake this into the price um, of the truck because then the assumption is you would save a ton of money from everything else that from operation, right? Mm -hmm. Safety, yeah, that doesn't even maintenance. factor in maintenance, which is a huge expense on these trucks. 
Yeah. Wouldn't you save more because that one you looked at, that Volvo truck you looked at was a 2022, that 223,000 miles on it. And I think you calculated 67,000 miles on it. Yeah. So, I, you know, you're probably going to run them as, mm -hmm. you know, as much as you can. It depends. So the ones that have the high mileage, those are doing your long distance routes. There's a lot of trucks that do like more local delivery type stuff. Um, and they're running a specific route that it takes them a lot of time, but it's not necessarily that far in distance. And so I think that's why you're seeing the average on the mileage be in that, yeah, 60,000 ish range. It's just a variety of different use cases for that size truck that are not all doing overland routes. Tires, tubes, liners, and valves is by far the biggest cost of, uh, of semi truck. So tires will be the same. But tubes, liners, and valves will be not, I don't think, applicable. Preventative uh, would go away they, as well. They should be the same. You think so? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be shocked if Tesla did not use the exact same tires, tubes. And like all the infrastructure is there. You just use normal trucking tires. So so, so is this all tire related though? Tire, tubes, liners, and valves. This is just all tire. Okay, sorry. Excuse me. Got it. So 12% goes away. Brakes should go away too because of regen, right? Theoretically, in some in some form, expendable items should go away. Exhaust system goes away. Fuel system goes away. That remains okay. So roughly fifty percent of your maintenance costs go away. Is that a fair statement? Okay. Um, average cost of maintenance on a semi truck. Just give me a freaking number. Fifteen thousand per year. Okay. So seven thousand dollars of maintenance cost per year, and life. So what's life? of semi truck 10 to 15 years so seventy thousand dollars saved over the course of the semi so i think we'll be on we'll be on the high side because again because it's electric it should last on the higher side yeah it should go 20 miles should we go 20 years instead of 10 years okay so at least so call it a hundred thousand dollars saved per year conservatively from the maintenance perspective over the life of the semi truck we do have to factor in battery life whatever the like we can't basically go beyond i don't know yeah. seven hundred fifty thousand miles so yeah. that's a little over 10 years uh at 62 that's like 12 years i mean unless unless tesla figures out how to have a battery that lasts significantly it'll longer be than structural that, right? yeah it'll okay. be a structural battery pack there will be no battery swap the battery will die and you'll recycle the thing. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But or so you'll I guess use it, it for shorter routes. Like, and I guess that is a real possibility that you, you change the application from a longer distance. Like if you're only using, say you've got 75% of your initial battery capacity and you yeah. just put it on a, a lower distance route where it still works fine so Makes you know sense. i guess potentially you could extend it there's still a ton of utility for the for the vehicle even in a like dead battery scenario if you that's what you're gonna call it. okay perfect okay so then then i then i think that the price of two to three hundred thousand per semi per year is very i think that's super valid especially over time Ninety thousand units sold per year would be close to or at the biggest semi truck manufacturer in the united states today 40% margin, I think. Go ahead, Hans. I was just going to say, we'll be, you know, at that point in time, 
will be trying to convert an entire fleet of gas trucks into electric trucks. And yeah, the demand will literally be infinite. Yes. Yeah, I think that one of those uh, documents you reviewed that said there was 2 million trucks of those trucks on the road currently, not that they were sold, but 2 million. So you got to replace them. In, oh yeah, sure, uh, the fleet. Yeah, yeah, you got to replace fleet. the entire fleet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, very cool. All right. So and then 40% margin, we all feel like is a legitimate number for this thing, because it's going to be very the the, the thought process here is that the legacy semi truck business is a gigantic mess. Just by looking at what was that one <laughs> new truck that looked like it was built in 1950. The assumption here is that these things uh, can be built much more vertically and much, much more uh, efficiently especially with Tesla's manufacturing prowess. So I think I feel comfortable. Let's just mean it, man. Let's just go like this. Minus 20, 0, 10, 20, 30, 35, 38. Let's just use that as a as a ramp. So I, I do and think 40% more. Even if that was generous, which I don't think it is, the way that you have FSD priced is ridiculously generous. You know that, what? I agree. Uh, or, I mean, ridiculously conservative. That They'll yeah. probably make... You know the biggest expense aside from fuel and trucking is the driver and so if at any point along that path you eliminate the need for a driver it's like an order of magnitude increase on the value of the vehicle mm -hmm. somebody yeah. said i would not add anything for fsd before 2026 okay that's that's okay i, I don't mind doing that but then in that but uh richard said but then i would start fsd zero to infinite yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you think 50,000 per uh, for FSD for a semi is, is legitimate? It has to be, like right? You, because if you, you, if you don't a need a driver, driver like $70,000 a year, and that's for one truck driver. And yeah. some of these trucks are running multiple drivers. Yeah. Team trucks. Yep. But those team trucks, they make up the well, yeah, but but they make up the price. Anyway, that, that's the fleet owner makes up the price on that. Okay, so I think 50000 is a very conservative number then, right? Is that a fair number? That's one yep. year's, what, less than one year's worth of payment, of pay. Okay. Um, I don't know, 40, oops, 30, 20. Um, I mean, why, why wouldn't it be here? Because by here, it should be solved, right? Okay. Okay, big numbers, <laughs> big numbers. So ninety thousand semi sold per year, three hundred thousand ASP, forty percent margin. That's a ten a billion dollars of gross profit per year. Um, then you add full self driving ASP at fifty thousand per truck, a hundred percent take rate. That's an additional four point five billion dollars to the bottom line, totaling at fifteen billion dollars of gross profit per year. Uh, if you assume no tax hit from earnings for that part of the business. At a PE of 20, that's $306 billion of market cap. PE of 50 is $765 billion. PE of 100, $1.5 trillion. So I, I think this say, is good. Yeah, and I was going to say, if I'm buying a fleet of trucks and I'm buying, buying it for the FSD on the come, I am going to buy it down. So I'm not going to wait till it's 50 grand. If I think it's coming and I'm buying the trucks, oh, sure. I'll, I'll spend 20 for three years for nothing. I will do that. I'll yeah. me money in the back end. Yeah. I do want to give a shout out to somebody, by the way. They just joined the channel. Um, Joseph, thank you very much, my friend. Check your messages. There should be a link to our private Discord.
Thank you very much for joining us, my friend. Really appreciate it. Um, so what else can we turn around with this truck thing? I mean, I think if so, it, to me, it seems like long term, the semi could very well add at least $300 billion of market cap to the company if this model works out. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of that, of course, hinges on FSD. But I do think Mayor Thacker is right that it should be, you know, one of the, it's a very high value added vertical to mm. get FSD working on. And a lot of it really is simpler. And I mean, that's even if they did one driver, you know, there's the whole platoon trucking idea. And so even if you had a an actual driver and then a platoon of robo semis behind them, following them to the destination, yeah. like that's fairly feasible from a software yeah. standpoint. Um, but yeah, like a lot of this value does depend on FSD. And so like, if you wanted to model it and say, okay, we're just going to take FSD revenue out. It, it's a lot lower. Um, you know, a large portion of almost a third of that revenue is that 50,000 hundred take, you know, hundred percent take rate. So, yeah. yeah. But I also believe that the sale price will be much higher. I, I, you know, I, I, I know, especially down the road in yeah. 2030, yeah. 2029, because I just think there's be so much utility and value to the trucking companies that there will, it still will be a great value for them. Yeah, I think I think the total net cost of uh, say three hundred and fifty thousand per truck does seem quite conservative long term. If you can solve FSD, like it seems, but it also could mean that hey, listen, like we've commoditized a lot of this labor, so that's why everything is an age of abundance. It's because trucking is way cheaper now. That could be another variable too, right? So, so it's interesting. So, I would say three hundred billion of market cap added to the company within the context of today's world of we're still going to value labor quite expensively in some realms, I think makes sense. But if we go towards the age of abundance, it could just be a billion dollars, but all of us can afford everything because everything is plentiful, <laughs> right? So it, it, there's a lot of uh, variables there. I would yeah. think the PE to, uh, ratio of 20 is pretty low too, because it's going to be sure. way, yeah, it would make the peg ratio too, too great or too low, I guess. This um, is a this will be a company that's building bots by this time as well, right? Yeah, freaking. Which weird. I have a different take on than other people. If we want so to do that, let's close it with that. We had let's 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 see if we can uh, keep it to two hours. If not, that's fine too. But mm -hmm. bot and investment grade. If you want to throw that in there, but Alexander did such a great job covering that yesterday with many people. But uh, yeah, let, let's give us your take on on the bot. So it, specifically on you know a lot of people are worried about job displacement by bot and how that's going to be so problematic. And unless Tesla can literally perform some sort of a miracle in their ability to ramp up to absolutely insane levels of production, I really don't see, like, we'll, we'll just posit a world where a bot can do anything a human can do as far as boring, repetitive labor, all the types of jobs that make $20 an hour or less. That is, there are literally billions of people doing those jobs right now. And it is, we're ramping production of bot, you know, it'll start out at 10 and then a hundred and then a thousand, like it's going to be a number of years before we're turning out on the order of 
100,000 bots a year, 500,000 bots a year, a million bots a year. And we literally have billions of people doing the types of jobs that make less than $20 an hour doing manual labor. And I think that we'll transition, that that transition will basically be slow enough. And the other thing that you have to think of is that there's an elasticity of demand. I think the bot will be able to be very profitable, even doing jobs that humans normally do for say five bucks an hour. And so what if you could quadruple the number of market participants that can do $5 an hour work? Like there's a huge demand for work and business models that are functional based on that labor cost that don't work today because you can't get anyone to do those jobs. And so I think that the elasticity of demand for the low price labor that bot will be able to produce will create an entirely new set of businesses that don't actually eat away any existing jobs necessarily, that they're all additive to global GDP and they're not subtractive and we're not going to be taking any major amount of jobs away from other people um, for, for a long time. And probably for so long, in fact, that the amount of political pain that we feel from automation by bots of all of our jobs will be a lot lower than everyone anticipates at this point in time. Because we just kind of make the logical leap to, like, it'll be possible. Eventually, yes, we'll have incredible amount of bots who can do an incredible amount of work. Um, and it we will find ourselves asking, okay, what the heck do we do as people? But the length of time between now and then is a lot longer than people are realizing just from a, a manufacturing standpoint. Like, you know, this is not software. You can't press a button and replicate it infinitely. It is subject to the laws of scaling based on physical stuff production. And that's a whole different um, scaling architecture than software. Um, and so I think a lot of people are basically thinking of this using their mental models for how software scales and it's not necessarily transferable. So anyways, that's my kind of counter uh, point to a lot of the things that I've been seeing, reading, hearing. Oh, I appreciate that. So so the the ramp towards the eventuality of bots being able to do all physical labor will be so long that it one it will if there needs to be a transition away from humans doing the physical those physical jobs into something else that that, that gets created from the creation of the bot existing that that window of time is going to be additive to GDP and additive to how many jobs humans can partake on versus uh, versus it actually being disruptive and being uh, it, it taking away jobs or displacing jobs. Is that a, a good summary of I'm thinking about that? Okay. All yeah, right. and it's going to just enable a bunch of new types of businesses that don't have viable cost structures currently. Yeah, I think I think. And and I'm starting to fall in that camp as well because initially, I mean, you you've heard me talk very. Uh, um, like I've been concerned about about how quickly it could displace, 
I do think that now my mentality is starting to shift towards the quickness of it to it ensuring that it falls in the correct hands so that the labor that gets generated from these bots is as universal and democratized as possible. I think is sort of what my head goes to because what I, what I don't want to happen and you tell me how you guys tell me how unlikely this is, is that it falls within the hands of folks that are looking to use the bot for their own gain and they essentially automate away or, or or generate value for themselves and then only very few people have access to the 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 plentiness that these bots create and it creates a giant a, a, a furthering gap between the haves and the have-nots right and so it sounds like a, a very unlikely scenario especially if tesla and you know uh, a company that Elon Musk has <laughs> described as uh, what's the word he used uh, that it's uh, uh, philanthropic in nature mm -hmm. in a way it's unlikely for that to happen I, I get it but um, what if Elon's not around in 10 years time or 20 years time and by then bots at full scale but then there's like you know what this would be great for our investors if we shift strategy to this and then just it's just a, a, a super drive to reducing costs but only very few people get to benefit those reduced costs and and the, and the value that the bots create, right? Um, yeah, does that think, make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And the Tesla, what you're alluding to here is Tesla will have a lot of power in the ability to Shaping. determine who can do, yeah, who can do what with what, um, right. the way that they, you know, potentially they don't sell the bots, potentially there's only subscriptions. And hey, you're not abiding by our subscription terms of use. And we feel like whatever you're doing is basically net negative for humanity. Um, then bye-bye, we revoke your subscription. Your bot doesn't work anymore. So it really depends on how they decide to structure their business model around bots. Um, and I think you know, for a long time, Hopefully Elon's around for as long as possible to shape whatever that is, because I think he will do the best job of preventing it from having unintended negative consequences. Yeah. I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say as I'm I at least over the last few years, we've had a decrease in the labor force. So maybe that will be a ongoing thing. And as the labor force decreases, the the kind of the strain on replacing the labor force with uh, you know, an autonomous labor force. Maybe that will be less of a strain just because it'll happen more in a kind of a natural uh, way. Um, I do think, though, that people might get displaced because in the past that's what happened. But they're, they find new avenues to go into and people are resistant. I mean, people are resistant to change. That's kind of how it is. So people are reluctant and eventually they, they figure out when things are better for them. They accept it. But there usually is resistance. And I was going to say is I think. And I don't, I don't know how long this is going to take. I, I agree with Hans. It may be, you know, such a long period that we're, you know, we're talking about a problem that may not be to the extent we think it is. But I think it will provide uh, avenues for people to leave the planet, it, you know, that people will have opportunities that they'll want to, you know, shoot for bigger things. But most importantly, in my mind, it'll let people explore the ocean. Because, you know, I always am like, always think it's fantastic that we know a lot more about space than we knew, know about our own undersea. And I think, you know, especially with bots, I think that would be like a, a useful use of, of them. But I think that will permit people to explore 
all avenues of the planet. And the ocean is the part that is the least explored and probably offers the most promise to us. Fascinating. Yeah, and Richard's point about, you know, SpaceX is going to be a huge buyer of these bots. And so if Elon wants a million people on Mars, well, maybe with bot, it's not a million people. Maybe it's 250,000 people and 750,000 bots. That's a lot of bots. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say without Elon's mission to Mars, I don't think the bots are are in play. I think that's a part of his mission to Mars. And with without them, it would make it much more difficult, if not impossible. I'm just, of course, speculating, of course. <laughs> I wanted to hit on Jay Lizard's comment. This is not Rob Mauer's new haircut. This is Rob Mauer's old haircut. <laughs> Finally, we have it back. It's facts. That's actually real facts. I find it fascinating that he had a brand new haircut at AI Day 2. I don't want to speculate, but I find that very fascinating. I recognize yeah. it immediately. I was like, hallelujah. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like this uh, long hair look, too. <laughs> and, obviously, and obviously, the Tesla bot was made after, with uh, the representation of Rob. Obviously of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're at two hours. Uh, do we want to hit uh, investment great maybe for a few seconds? Uh, what, what do you all think? I, I think the there's a uh, there's uh, implications long term for this uh, uh, upgrade f to really maximize the number of funds and people that can invest in Tesla, especially long term. So that's nothing but a positive, right? So what what do you guys think about that? You know, I know this is something that a lot of people have been beating the drum on for a long time. It's not just Alexandra, but she's definitely taken the bull by the horns. And I think a lot of her pestering of the people and her connections to the people that make the decisions was really impactful. And, and I love uh, so, she yeah. will be like very proud of the word pestering, too. <laughs> yes, yes, she will be. Um, and so huge props to her in basically... Mm -hmm helping to accelerate this hopefully you know maybe maybe she didn't have any influence over the timeline maybe it was still going to happen but i think there's definitely a better than 50 percent chance that her pestering yes uh, helped to accelerate this uh it's a great thing as far as institutional investors being able to have access to it you know it kind of makes me sad to think about all the pension funds and retirement funds that have had zero Tesla exposure as it's performed just incredibly well, simply because, well, there's this rule about if their debt is not rated investment grade, then you can't invest in their stock, which is funky, but the way that the whole gated institutional system works. Um, but yeah, great that now those fund managers can allocate some to Tesla if they would like to. I think there will be some that will kind of remains to be seen how positively this will impact the stock. And I doubt we'll ever really be able to, um, well, I guess we, we will be able to see if institutional participation starts to grow in relationship to retail, we'll see how many funds move in. Um, and you would expect that to grow as the company grows and stabilizes, but the, it's hard for them to wrap their mind around a business that's still growing so rapidly. So, you know, a lot of times these pension funds are going to wait until they have something that's more like Coke, where yeah, you can pretty much predict it a hundred yeah, years the into penny. the future. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, that's I, a good point. I wanted to thank Tesla BBB Mama for her efforts, and it's appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
obviously, you know, if we hadn't got the upgrade, the stock would have been down. Of course, oh, obviously. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get what, you know, when things kind of stabilize and everything gets back to normal, I'm sure we will get the benefit of the additional yes. investment, you know, from all the institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It cannot be understated just how much of a factor macro is having right now on everything. I mean, it is it is quite, quite brutal out there. Um, let's close out the stream on a really good note. Tesla is down 6%. How about that? Isn't that amazing? I just uh, want to point out Farzad's trolliness. Obviously, don't look at the stock. Here, I'm going to show you the stock since you're watching my stream. <laughs> Sorry. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a... Dude, I think like the problem is Yashu is still sitting on Tesla is the problem. I think that's the problem. He needs to stand up from Tesla once in a while. Mm -hmm. Let it actually rise up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, if you if you do follow me on Twitter, I'm sorry. I do troll a lot. And uh, I'm just, I don't know. It's just fun for me. But uh, what a discussion, you guys. I think this was uh, this was super fun, very in-depth. I think we've covered... My, my goal with these things was to be able to take a topic and just drill in incredibly deeply and really understand what are the core things that are driving that topic and what are the things that can be dissected. So I really want to thank you both for being part of that discussion. I think we've done a really good job today to do that for the audience. And thank you so much for, for the support of the channel. Obviously, everybody who's been watching and uh, reading through with us, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for all of you. I, I do hope this is valuable for the community. And I think it's valuable as well to create some you know, get some things marinating in, in in your brain to try and figure out, okay, where where is this thing going that we're talking about? What are the likely outcomes? How should I think about it? Test my thesis, you know, test, test our thesis. You know, I think it's an important place for ideas and thoughts to be to be thrown around without judgment, without any sort of like negative or positive implications. We'll just take them as they are, analyze them and try to move forward from there. So thank you both very much for being part of this uh, weird experiment we're doing right now. But I do think it's it's uh, turning out to be quite uh, valuable for me at the very least. And I hope it's valuable for others as well. So thank you both very much. Yeah. And I just want to get on the public record that Richard has been a great source on the whole yes. Twitter fiasco that I feel like I have a better understanding of what's really going on from him than even Gary Black or, you know, a lot of the people who are prognosticating online. So, yeah. Thank you, Richard. Well, thank you. And I enjoy participating and I learn a lot from both you guys a lot more than I know. So I, I appreciate Likewise. it. And uh, again, you know, part of this, I think part of this is teaching civil discussion. So if we have different difficult you know differences to have a civil discussion and I think that especially nowadays that's really important. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And and what I love about these is the civil discussion it's so effortless in these forums at least what I'm what I'm noticing because of of you guys because of everybody who's been taking part of this and really uh almost taking that to heart and and driving that forward as well so so yeah it's it's been just a, such a joy like it's i look forward to fridays because i'm like man i can't wait to sit down with the community and like drill a topic down into its bones and uh, some people might find it boring or kind of like why are you just focusing on this one thing but like that's what it takes to really understand what the hell's going on we got to freaking dig deep and see what's going on so uh anyway uh, I won't keep you guys anymore out there watching us. Thank you all very much. Happy Friday. Tesla is in the stock market. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you around and broadcast. Here we go.